Hello, this is Helga Edwards, and I'm here with my husband Bob. Today, we will be reading Genesis chapters 32 and 33 from the Good News Translation of the Bible, today's English version. Beginning at chapter 32, verse 1. As Jacob went on his way, some angels met him. When he saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he named the place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the country of Edom. He instructed them to say, I, Jacob, your obedient servant, report to my master Esau that I have been staying with Laban and that I have delayed my return until now. I own cattle, donkeys, sheep, goats, and slaves. I am sending you word, sir, in the hope of gaining your favor. When the messengers came back to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and he is already on his way to meet you. He has four hundred men with him. Jacob was frightened and worried. He divided into two groups the people who were with him, and also his sheep, goats, cattle, and camels. He thought, If Esau comes and attacks the first group, the other may be able to escape. Then Jacob prayed, God of my grandfather Abraham and God of my father Isaac, hear me. You told me, Lord, to go back to my land and to my relatives, and you would make everything go well for me. I am not worth all the kindness and faithfulness that you have shown me, your servant. I crossed the Jordan with nothing but a walking stick, and now I have come back with these two groups. Save me, I pray, from my brother Esau. I am afraid afraid that he is coming to attack us and destroy us all, even the women and children. Remember that you promised to make everything go well for me, and to give me more descendants than anyone could count, as many as the grains of sand along the seashore. After spending the night there, Jacob chose from his livestock as a present for his brother Esau, two hundred female goats and twenty males, two hundred female sheep, and twenty males, thirty milk camels with their young, forty cows and ten bulls, female donkeys and ten males. He divided them into herds and put one of his servants in charge of each herd. He said to them, Go ahead of me and leave a space between each herd and the one behind it. He ordered the first servant, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, Who is your master? Where are you going? Who owns these animals in front of you? You must answer, they belong to your servant Jacob. He sends them as a present to his master Esau. Jacob himself is right behind us. He gave the same order to the second, the third, and to all the others who were in charge of the herds. This is what you must say to Esau when you meet him. You must say, yes, your servant Jacob is right behind us. Jacob was thinking, I will win him over with the gifts, and when I meet him, perhaps he will forgive me. He sent the gifts ahead of him and spent the night in the camp. That same night, Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two concubines, and his eleven children, and crossed the Jabbok River. After he had sent them across, he also sent across all that he owned, but he stayed behind alone. Then a man came and wrestled with him until just before daybreak. When the man saw that he was not winning the struggle, he hit Jacob on the hip, and it was thrown out of joint. The man said, 
Let me go. Daylight is coming. I won't unless you bless me, Jacob answered. What is your name? the man asked. Jacob, he answered. The man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob. You have struggled with God and with men, and you have won. So your name will be Israel. Jacob said, Now tell me your name. But he answered, Why do you want to know my name? Then he blessed Jacob. Jacob said, I have seen God face to face, and I am still alive. So he named the place Penuel. The sun rose as Jacob was leaving Penuel, and he was limping because of his hip. Even today, the descendants of Israel do not eat the muscle which is on the hip joint, because it was on this muscle that Jacob was hit. Jacob saw Esau coming with his four hundred men, so he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two concubines. He put the concubines and their children first, then Leah and her children, and finally Rachel and Joseph at the rear. Jacob went ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. They were both crying. When Esau looked around and saw the women and the children, he asked, Who are these people with you? These, sir, are the children whom God has been good enough to give me, Jacob answered. Then the concubines came up with their children and bowed down. Then Leah and her children came, and last of all, Joseph and Rachel came and bowed down. Esau asked, What about that other group I met? What did that mean? Jacob answered, It was to gain your favor. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother, keep what you have. Jacob said, No, please, if I have gained your favor, accept my gift. To see your face for me is like seeing the face of God, now that you have been so friendly to me. Please accept this gift which I have brought for you. God has been kind to me and given me everything I need. Jacob kept on urging him until he accepted. Esau said, Let's get ready and leave. I will go ahead of you. Jacob answered, You know that the children are weak, and I must think of the sheep and the livestock with their young. If they are driven hard for even one day, the whole herd will die. Please go on ahead of me, and I will follow slowly, going as fast as I can with the livestock and the children until I catch up with you in Edom. Esau said, Then let me leave some of my men with you. But Jacob answered, There is no need for that, for I only want to gain your favor. So that day Esau started on his way back to Edom, but Jacob went to Sukkoth, where he built a house for himself and shelters for his livestock. That is why the place was named Sukkoth. On his return from Mesopotamia, Jacob arrived safely at the city of Shechem in the land of Canaan and set up his camp in a field near the city. He bought that part of the field from the descendants of Hamor, father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver. He put up an altar there and named it for El, the God of Israel. Here ends our reading of Genesis chapters 32 and 33. When Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to meet Esau, he asked to be introduced in the following manner. I, Jacob, your obedient servant, report to my master Esau that I have been staying with Laban and that I have delayed my return until now. I own cattle, donkeys, sheep, goats, and slaves. I am sending you word, sir, in the hope of gaining your favor. 
According to our oldest available Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic manuscripts of this passage, Jacob used the same word when he referred to Esau as both master and sir in these passages. When Jacob finally met with Esau, his actions matched this language when he bowed to the ground seven times. What do these words and actions tell us about Jacob's relationship to Esau? Patriarchal theologians and Bible translators have assumed that this language generally carries the meaning of accepting someone's rightful authority. Was Jacob really accepting the authority of his brother Esau? No, in fact he was not. According to the grammar rules of all the Bible's oldest languages, the meaning of the word used by Jacob must be determined by its context. While this word could refer to a worshiper being humble before a deity, or to a slave submitting to the authority of a master, it could also refer to an expression of remorse, or to the act of simply greeting someone with an attitude of humility and respect. Which of these possible meanings best fits the context of the situation that existed between Jacob and Esau? Jacob was not worshiping his brother, and he was not recognizing Esau's authority. In fact, a prophecy made by Rebekah in Genesis 25-23 stated that one day Esau would serve Jacob. Jacob was humbling himself before his brother, who might still be angry about being tricked out of his birthright. Jacob not only humbled himself, but also sent Esau many gifts, hoping to win his brother's favor. In addition to this show of remorse, Jacob was also greeting his brother with an attitude of humility and respect. Jacob's wives and children greeted Esau in the same manner, even though they had done him no wrong. In other words, calling someone Lord, Master, or Sir in the Bible did not automatically indicate that the person occupied a position of God-ordained authority over the speaker. In fact, this language very often did not carry this meaning. A Bible passage that perhaps best illustrates this point can be found in Genesis 24 verses 10 through 18, where Abraham's servant or slave has a conversation with Rebekah when he first meets her. Portions of that passage read as follows. The servant, who is in charge of Abraham's property, took ten of his master's camels and went to the city where Nahor had lived in northern Mesopotamia. When he arrived, he made the camels kneel down at the well outside the city. Rebekah arrived with a water jar on her shoulder. She went down to the well, filled her jar, and came back. The servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a drink of water from your jar. She said, Drink, sir, and quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and held it while he drank. Rebecca referred to this man as sir, using the same language that Jacob used to address Esau. Just as Jacob was not submitting himself to Esau's rightful authority, Neither was Rebekah submitting herself to the authority of Abraham's slave. In ancient Greek manuscripts of the Bible, the language used between Rebekah and Abraham's slave, and again between Jacob and Esau, is also used between Sarah and her husband Abraham. 
In 1 Peter 3.6, Sarah is portrayed as calling Abraham, Sir. In the New Living Translation of 1 Peter 3, 1 and 6, this language is badly mistranslated. These verses read as follows. In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him her master. To begin, the Greek language of 1 Peter 3.1 makes absolutely no reference to a husband's alleged authority. That language is added by English translators. In the Greek language of 1 Peter 3.1, wives are called to demonstrate the same humility toward their husbands that all Christians are called to show one another in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Furthermore, in 1 Peter 3.7, husbands are called to relate to their wives quote-unquote, in the same manner, honoring them as co-heirs of God's kingdom. Husbands who fail to do this are warned that God will not hear their prayers. Furthermore, in reference to Sarah's alleged obedience, God is portrayed in Greek manuscripts of the Old Testament as using similar language when he tells Abraham to listen to his wife and do what she says in Genesis 21.12. The verb used in reference to Sarah is hupakuo. The verb used in reference to Abraham is akuo. In the ancient Greek language of an author named Xenophon, these verbs were used interchangeably. Specifically, in Xenophon's Chiropedia, Book 8, Chapter 1, Section 18, they were used in reference to a judge giving a hearing to a witness. In other words, this language did not always carry the general meaning of being obedient to an authority figure. It often referred, for example, to giving someone a fair hearing or listening to someone with an attitude of respect and humility. Both Sarah and Abraham related to one another in this manner in the Bible. Sarah was never commanded by God to unilaterally subject herself to the authority of her husband simply because he was a man. It is also not the case that the Greek word kurios, which means sir, lord, or master, was applied exclusively to men. In ancient Greek society, the same word had a feminine form, curia, which was applied to any woman over the age of 14. The English equivalent would be ma'am, lady, or mistress. Patriarchal or complementarian theologians, like the translators of the New Living Translation, overlook these facts of ancient language and history. Instead of accurately portraying Sarah as relating to her husband with an attitude of humility and respect, an attitude that husbands were commanded to reciprocate, they project their own patriarchal assumptions onto the Bible and wrongly conclude that God requires women to submit to male authority. Why does such an error so often show itself in English translations of the Bible? Answering this question requires a brief overview of the history of Bible translation. Many of our earliest English translations relied heavily on the Latin Bible of Erasmus, written in the 16th century AD. In turn, Erasmus' work was influenced by an earlier Latin translation written in the 4th century AD called the Vulgate. 
One of the main translators of the Vulgate, St. Jerome, used Roman law and Greek philosophy as an interpretive guide to the Bible. Listeners can learn more about this in our book entitled The Equality Workbook, Freedom in Christ from the Oppression of Patriarchy, available through our website, www.awakedebra.com. The Greek philosophy embraced by Jerome viewed women as inferior to men by nature. Roman law insisted that women be kept under the authority of male guardians from birth until death. Rather than seeing male authority as a human institution, Jerome and others wrongly assumed that just because it was normative in ancient Rome, it must have been God-ordained. This faulty assumption lies behind many of the errors in translation that this podcast seeks to address. Contrary to what patriarchal theologians and complementarian Bible translators have suggested, the language used of Sarah in 1 Peter chapter 3 does not indicate that women must accept male authority. Similarly, the use of the same language in Genesis 24 did not indicate that Rebekah was submitting herself to the authority of Abraham's slave. In Genesis chapters 32 and 33, Jacob is not accepting the authority of his brother Esau. Rather, he is demonstrating remorse for his past actions and simply greeting his brother with an attitude of humility and respect. The same attitude that all followers of Jesus Christ are called upon to demonstrate one to another, regardless of their sex or marital status. As we seek to accurately understand the Bible, may the Holy Spirit help us not to confuse the ancient customs of a fallen world with the principles of God's kingdom. Slavery and male authority may have been the norm in ancient cultures, but in God's kingdom there is neither slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ.